Keep your finger in Revelation 5. We're going to look at that text in just a moment. Uh, before we do look at Revelation chapter 5, just wanted to set the scene of, of some of the things that you probably have seen in the news. Maybe you haven't. It seems that we have uh, our world, especially south of the border, just spiraling into strife and tensions and, and, and across racial lines. Uh, we have just recently in Charlottesville, Virginia, Officials plan to remove a statue of Robert E. Lee. He was a a famous, a top general in the Confederacy from the South. And the South represented slavery and they wanted to fight in the North. There was conflict between the two. And so now there's there's been a push all across the United States to to remove these these statues that are reminders of that that time in history and really a reminder of slavery to so many. And so city councils everywhere are removing these statues. Some are being pulled down by protesters. And then you have people who, who don't want these statues pulled down. It's causing a lot of conflict and tension. Not only that, but we have, over the years, a number of police-involved shootings that have been prominent in the media that have further flared tensions between black and white. We have a variety of different groups today that are receiving much press time. White nationalists, white supremacists, movement called the alt-right. We have Antifa, Black Lives Matter, and more. We have all these different groups. And I'm, I'm not saying that all these groups are the same and identical in, in what they believe and what they stand for. But just the presence that these groups exist and that receive so much prominence in the media is just showing that, that this, uh, the idea of racial tension is, is getting back in the forefront of our lives. And that's, that's just in the United States. Here in Canada, we have tensions between... Uh, indigenous peoples or First Nations and people who are not First Nations. We hear much about uh, residential schools and, and, and wanting to achieve reconciliation. Uh, we hear things when, about, about pipelines going through, going through reserves and, and, and different matters relating to how Indigenous peoples should be treated in our day and age. And so this morning... We're going to take a look in light of all these things happening and light of, in light of all these things happening. What does the Bible say about racism? What does the Bible say about different ethnicities and how we are to, to treat one another? OK, and so what is racism? First off, there's a definition. If you have a sermon handout, the definition on there. So racism, as I'll be speaking of it today is to hold that one one race, I know that's not a, a helpful term, but, but one race, one lineage, one ethnicity that shares a common set of, of genetic features, you know, skin color, eye shape, hair kind, uh, language, culture. You know, to say that one ethnicity is more valuable than another or is different in terms of worth than another is, is racism. Okay, so that's how... Uh, I'm going to define it here today. And I'll be very clear right off the start that racism is sinful. Okay, the Bible says that racism, to say that that someone, because of their ethnicity, heritage, skin color, is better than somebody else who differs from them, it's wicked and it's sinful. Okay? Any, any thoughts that we harbor against another people group because of their shared features... Any ill will we have towards them is sinful and needs to be repented of. Any behaviors or actions where, where we show partiality to a people group or we, we discriminate against a people group, whether individually or together collectively, 
as a church or or as a city or as a country, that's wicked and it's sinful. Okay, to say that those with black skin are inferior is is wickedly sinful to say that that indigenous people are not equal in, in dignity or value or worth. That they're not same as worth as a white person of European descent, again, is is wickedly sinful. And so all people, regardless of their ethnicity, of their race, lineage, language, skin color, should be treated with equal dignity, value, and worth. Okay, so that's that's what I'll say right up front. Okay, and then we'll go through the scriptures to, to, to back that up. But before we get there, I want to just clarify, make another clarification and a, of a danger to avoid because the word racism, how I've defined it, is typically agreed by most people in our society today that it is wrong, it's abhorrent, it's wicked. Uh, but yet, sometimes the definition for, for racism becomes even more broad to, to, to move beyond a person's ethnicity to even include a person's ideas. For instance, if I was to say that Islam is a terrible, wicked religion, some would accuse me of Islamophobia. Some would include me even of racism toward Arabs because I have denigrated their religion. That's not racism. By saying that someone's ideas or beliefs about this world or their beliefs about God are wrong. Okay, it's not racism to say that indigenous peoples here in Canada, First Nations spirituality is wrong. That it's devoid of truth. That it does not lead to the true God. That it is devoid of true salvation. That that they must come to Jesus Christ in faith alone. And apart from Jesus, there is no salvation. Okay, I'm not being racist by saying that First Nations spirituality is wrong. Whether you're First Nations or not is beside the point. If someone believes in animism, if someone believes in a religion like Islam, regardless of your skin color, regardless of your language or where you're from, I can say based on the authority of Scripture that you're wrong. Okay, I'm not meaning to disparage a certain ethnicity or a certain people group. Imagine this, and maybe this is more helpful to make a distinction. Imagine if there's a tribal people who were cannibals and who also believe that the sun revolved around the earth. Okay, to say it's wrong to be a cannibal and that no, the earth actually revolves around the sun is not a racist comment. It's not anything about this people group. It's not about their skin or about who they are as human beings. It's about their beliefs and their behaviors. Okay, so we can point out beliefs and behaviors that are wrong and that are that are not um, good, as especially defined by the scriptures here. And so when I say that Islam has doctrines about jihad, about martyrdom, about women and marriage that are despicable and that, that cannot be tolerated in any kind of civilized society, I'm not disparaging Arabs, but rather the beliefs that have stemmed from Muhammad and that are repugnant as we evaluate them according to what the scriptures would say, okay, Islam is not a race, it's not an ethnicity, it's not a nationality, okay, so it's not racism to, to tell that another person's religion is, is wrong, okay, and I just clarify that right off front because that is what, what we're confronted with in our day and age when we stand for Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, okay, they'll accuse you of those kinds of things. 
But racism, as we speak of today, is to hold that one race, lineage, ethnicity is, is better. There's differences between different ethnicities or races. Okay? Now, why is racism wrong? So we're going to go to first. Why is it wrong? And then, um, what, what, what can we do about it? But first, why is it wrong? Now, what's so interesting is, is the Bible is so clear on why racism is wrong. And we'll get there in just a moment. But in preparation for this morning's sermon, I decided to ask Google, you know, Google's wise and type into Google why racism is wrong and, and read what the world says about why racism is wrong. It should be easy to answer. But what I found was it was an incredibly difficult search to find out from our world today why racism is wrong. You know, most people wouldn't even, even mention why it's wrong. It just is, period. It's wrong. And, and this is what we need to do to correct it. Now, for those articles and books that, that sought to actually give a defense of why racism is wrong, there was no consensus. And, and the most popular answer that I could find from our secular, evolutionary, materialistic worldview as to why racism is wrong is because of the fruit that it produces. Because racism is wrong because it creates divisions in our society. It, it causes young people to be depressed and have a low self-esteem. It causes, it causes people to be, to be relegated and then they, and they, and they, they then respond out of, out of anger or violence. And so because of all of the bad things it produces in our society, racism is wrong. Now, what's so interesting about that most common answer that I was able to find about what our society says about racism is wrong, the very same reasons are used by those who are racist. Like if you consider the white, white nationalists or the alt-right movement, the very same logic they use to defend their racism is the very same thing because they say, because we are not a mono-ethnic country, we have division, we have hatred, we have hostility, we have murder, we have all these things happen because we're not mono-ethnic. And so they actually ground their defense of racism in what it actually produces. They say a, a diverse, multicultural society produces problems, and so we need to go back to a white state. They use the exact same logic to defend their racism as those who seek to eradicate racism would use. And what we see is if we go to a secular evolutionary worldview, there is no foundation to stand on. There is no objective truth that you can stand on and say, regardless of what anyone would say, regardless of the fruit it may or may not produce, objectively, in all places and at all times, racism is wrong. Now, we can say that as Christians. And why can we say that? That regardless of the time, regardless of the place, why can we say that racism is wrong? The first place that I want to read from is from Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, in verse 26 and 27. Okay, I'm going to read there. And we're going to see why racism is wrong. Okay? We have two foundations in our world today. We have the, the Christian ethic that comes to us from God, the Creator, who was revealed to us in the Word of Scripture. And in our society today, the other prevalent worldview is that of evolution, that of secularism, that of pluralism. And there's no foundation in this evolutionary worldview. In fact, as we look back in the 20th century, we see the eugenics movement. 
We see Nazi Germany. We see communism, both in China and Russia. Very racist groups doing incredible atrocities, standing on that foundation of evolution. We don't see the same thing in scripture. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God made Adam and Eve in his own image. And every descendant from Adam and Eve, including whether your skin is black or white or, or red or yellow, any other kind of mix you might perceive of, We all descend from Adam and Eve. There is only one human race. And we're all made in the image of God. Acts 17, 24 to 28. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it to you. Acts 17, 24 says this. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind, life and breath and everything. And listen to this. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. We're all descended from one man. We're all human beings. And what's so interesting is, is we have dignity and value and worth because we are human beings, because we are made in the image of God. We are image bearers, representations of who God is in his character and his attributes in his, in his will to be able to exercise dominion and the ability to be able to relate and to love and to experience joy. All these things are part of what it means to be made in the image of God and all of humanity shares that together. And so when we talk about the foundation for moral values that are accepted as true among our society, our society says murder is wrong. And we'll say amen, it's wrong. Why is it wrong? It's wrong because the Bible says in Genesis 9, 6, it is wrong to take another man's life because he is made in the image of God. And so when you murder someone, you're destroying someone who's made in the image of God. So God has bestowed upon us dignity and value and worth that is different than the animals. It's not murder when you kill a dog or when you kill a cow for your supper or a chicken. That's not murder. It's murder when you kill a person because a person is made in the image of God. And that's why hatred is wrong. That's why racism is wrong because that person is made in the image of God and so they're worthy of dignity and value and respect just as you are. And so because of the image of God, it's wrong to murder, it's wrong to hate, it's wrong to show partiality, it's wrong to discriminate against someone else who is another image bearer of God. So that's why racism is wrong according to the scriptures. Now, now where did racism come from then? Why do we have why do we have something that we even call racism today? And again, the Bible explains where it came from. It comes from sin. Each and every one of us are sinful. So we see God's good creation in Genesis 1, and then we see the fall into sin in Genesis 3. And because of the fall into sin, all of us are born sinners. And because part of our sin is the idea that the world revolves around self 
and not around God. And as soon as we have a worldview where we're at the center, where everything is about our self-worth, we're so selfish, about self-gratification, self-love, self-worship, self-fulfillment. And so racism is born right out of that desire for self because we love ourselves. And so we also love people who are just like ourselves and look like ourselves. And people who don't look like us, boy, there's, there's someone who's different. And so I'm going to despise you because it flows out of pride. And so pride leads to partiality and discrimination and racism. And so skin color, origin of birth, language spoken, these things have no meaning in and of themselves. Skin color is just the amount of melanin in your body. It's, it's not, it doesn't differentiate us physically between one another. But these differences in our physical features just give our pride room to show discrimination and hatred and partiality and racism. And so the Bible here gives us a foundation of why racism is wrong, and it also tells us why it exists. And unless you know why something is wrong, why it exists, and what the root problem is, you're, you're powerless to defeat it. Because our world, our society today, they, they also, for the most part, want to defeat racism. But unless you know why it's wrong, where it comes from, what the root of it is, how are you going to, to defeat it? You don't have a proper diagnosis. So you're not going to be able to attack it at its root. And so the Bible gives us these reasons. Now at this point, before we look at Revelation 5, one more clarification I need to make. Really really handle an objection. Because some of you might be thinking right now, especially if people are listening who are, who are not Christians, yeah, that sounds nice and sweet and all, but... Aren't there a whole bunch of Christians in the past and even today who are racist? Didn't Christians also have slaves and try to defend that practice with the Bible? Doesn't sound like it's a very good foundation to say that racism is wrong to me. And it's true. It's true. There have been many Christians in the past who've been racist. Many Christians in the past who have held slaves and sought to defend it with the Bible and sought to defend how how people stolen from their homes in Africa and brought over here to America, how that was right and fair. And they tried to use scripture to defend it. That's true. We can't we can't deny that. So we have that time in history. We have the church even here in Canada that was involved in residential school systems for indigenous peoples. We have churches, even in our 20th century, practicing segregation, banning interracial marriage. That's here in North America. In fact, it wasn't until the year 2000, okay? The year 2000 is recent. It wasn't until the year 2000 that Bob Jones University, a big institution that many of you know, finally removed their ban on interracial dating. That was the year 2000. When they said, okay, we're, we're, you're allowed to date if you're not the same race or ethnicity. And so this is an issue that we as Christians must think about and talk about and, and to deal with. Now, what I want to say is because Christians can be wicked sinners, they can practice and harbor discrimination and partiality and racism. It doesn't necessarily mean that's what the Bible teaches. 
So often we as Christians can be more influenced by our culture and the world than by the word of God. And sadly, that has happened in the past and even today. Now there are some Christians who continue to argue that the Bible does in fact endorse some form of of separation, segregation, a ban on on intermarriage or interdating between different races. And, And some would appeal to the curse against Ham. If you remember back to the story of, of Noah and the flood, the world is destroyed by the flood. Noah comes out and Noah sinfully goes and plants a vineyard, gets drunk. He's exposed in his tent and his son Ham goes in there and sees him exposed. And rather than covering up, covering up his father, he goes and tells his other brothers, hey, guys, come and come check out dad. <laughs> and so they be respectful brothers. They go in backwards with a blanket and cover up their father. Not mean to disrespect him. So when Noah sobers up and realizes what happened, he enters a curse of sorts, a prophecy against, not against Ham, but against Ham's son Canaan. Curse be Canaan. And so some would say, well, well, that makes a lot of sense because Ham's descendants migrated down south to Africa. His, his, his descendants were Cush and, and Ethiopia and Egypt and, and those that settled down into Africa. And so that curse is upon those people who come from Africa, those of dark skin. There's a curse upon them, and so there shouldn't be no there should be segregation and no interracial marriage or dating. Some Christians in the past, and even today, have sought to use that line of reasoning, but I want to show you why that line of reasoning is absurd and wrong. Okay? Three reasons. Why that the Bible is, is nowhere near that on what it means. First is this the curse that Noah threatened there in Genesis chapter 9 uh, and in chapter 10 was not against Ham and his descendants. It was against Canaan. Okay, that's the first thing. It was against Canaan. It was, it was Ham's son Canaan that was singled out, not all of his lineage. The second thing that's important to realize is that Canaan didn't migrate south. Canaan went, Canaan went and lived in the land of Palestine and through Canaan's offspring we have the Canaanites. And why would Noah even, even utter a threat or a curse or have his prophecy? Curse be Canaan. It was a foreshadowing of that, that Canaan, as Ham's son, would be just as vile as his father, but in fact, even more so. And the Canaanites practiced the, the murder of their children. Their offspring would be born and they would place them on this burning idol, Molech, and they placed the baby on the arms and that baby would, would melt and run down the arms into the fire and they would burn their children to their fake God. They would engage in sexual immorality and prostitution and homosexuality, all in this act of orgy worship to their great God. That were the, those were the Canaanites. And so this was really a foreshadowing of the wickedness of the Canaanites. Nothing to do with people who were in Africa. The third thing that we need to remember is that this statement made by Noah is not made against all individuals of that particular group. It was a foreshadowing of, of how wicked the Canaanites were going to be. But not of every single Canaanite and not, not a curse upon them perpetually forever and ever and ever. It's just not in the text. And even consider some of the famous Canaanites that we know. We've just been studying the book of Hebrews. And there's a gentleman there in the book of Hebrews who was a priest of the Most High God and he was the king of Salem, Melchizedek. 
He's a king of a Canaanite city. Melchizedek was a Canaanite. And so it wasn't a curse upon all peoples of that lineage. And so for these three reasons, it is completely wrong to say that this curse against Ham or Ham's son somehow legitimizes racism or a banning of interracial marriage or segregation. Now, someone might ask at this point, well, what about forbidding marriage and mixed marriages in the Old Testament? Isn't there... I remember reading somewhere in Ezra, wasn't, didn't Ezra come in there and just clean up house and say, you guys need to divorce all your wives because you've, you've intermarried? Wasn't Solomon pointed out because of his different marriages that he married people outside of Jerusalem or the Jewish people? Don't we read in Deuteronomy 7? And I want to read from you Deuteronomy 7, verse 3 and 4. It says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. That's Deuteronomy 7, verse 3. Doesn't that give us legitimate ground to say there's differences between races and therefore segregation, interracial dating, and these things uh, we need to police? But that's, again, that's a wrong understanding of Scripture. That's twisting Scripture. Because let me read the rest of Deuteronomy 7, verse 3 and verse 4. I didn't read the last half of the sentence. It begins and says, You shall not intermarry with them, This is talking about the the Israelites going into the land of Canaan. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For, okay, here's an explanation why God would command that. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. That's the reason why. Nothing to do with their ethnicity. Nothing to do with their language, their eye shape, their skin color. It's because they worship a false god. And so you can't, as a worshiper of the true God, marry someone who worships a false god because they're going to pull you away from worship of the true God. It's not because the Israelites were some higher form of human humanity. And that if you were a Jew, then somehow the blood flowing through your veins is more precious than the blood flowing through someone who's a Canaanite. Not at all, because, and again... This is, this is what reading the context is so very helpful. Deuteronomy 7.3 says it forbids um, marrying the other Canaanites. Verse 4 tells you why. And then right in verse 6, it further explains and says this. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Okay, you're God's chosen people to serve him, to worship him. And then it continues and says this. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out, of a, out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God is explicit to say that you are my people because I love you. Not because of anything of who you are or what you've done, how many you are, how tall you are, your skin color, your blood type. None of that matters. The reason why Israel was God's people is because God chose to love them, period. And so God reminds them of that. Don't feel all cocky and confident that, hey, we're... We're the chosen race, so I guess we're the, we're the higher race. No. So that's not how I chose you. It's not why I love you. And so this text that forbids 
marrying into the Canaanites has nothing to do with race, discrimination, partiality, anything like that. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, you have Ruth, who's a Moabite, not a Jew. And she marries Boaz. And she's, she's, a, she's in the line of, of David. And not only that, but she's in the line of Christ. She's one of the four women mentioned in Christ's genealogy in the Gospels. She's not a Jew. And the Bible never once critiques that marriage, but rather praises it. Why? Because Ruth, when she came with Naomi, said, your God is my God. Ruth loved the one true God. And so there's no problem for Boaz to marry her. We have another example of Moses. Moses married a Midianite woman, Zipporah. But then we have, in Numbers chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron coming to Moses, accusing him because he had married a Cushite woman. A Cushite woman is, is a woman of Ethi- an Ethiopian woman. So Moses married a black African woman. Now, how can this be? Because the scriptures always refer to Moses as having one wife. Well, as he put the pieces together, it would seem that, that Zipporah, his first wife, died and then Moses remarried and then the person he remarried was a person from Ethiopia. Now Miriam and Aaron go to Moses because of the Cushite woman that Moses had married. That's, what, that's why they went to him. And then what does God do? Because you can imagine Miriam and Aaron going to Moses and, and saying, you know, you're marrying this lady from Ethiopia. And God turns to Miriam and Aaron and punishes them for criticizing this marriage. In fact, he gives Miriam leprosy and so that her, her skin becomes white as snow. And some commentators see here a, a criticism from, from Miriam and Aaron against the ethnicity and the skin color of this woman that Moses married. And that God retaliates by making Miriam's skin white. You want to be white? I'll make you white. I'll make you leprous. That was a form of judgment when they criticized this interracial marriage between Moses and this Cushite woman. The scripture doesn't speak wrongly against interracial marriage. Rather, what the Bible condemns and forbids, whether we're talking about Old Testament or New Testament, is marrying outside the faith is for someone who is a worshiper of the true God, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ here in the New Covenant, for them to be following God and to marry someone who is not a Christian, that is forbidden. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. To date or to marry someone who is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ when you profess to be one is a sin and it's wrong and God forbids it. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 7.39. Okay, 1 Corinthians 7.39 says this. But if her husband dies, speaking about a, a wife who has lost her husband, if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. If your spouse dies, Scripture says you can be remarried, but only in the Lord. That is, you can only marry someone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 6 14 to 16 says this. It says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? 
The answer to all these is, is nothing. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. You see, the Bible never once condones, supports, teaches racism or partiality or discrimination because of your ethnicity. But the Bible is very clear that to be a follower of God, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, to marry outside the faith is sinful and is wrong. Now, that's a message that, sadly, we've missed today in the church. How many people who grow up in Christian homes and then date outside the faith? And how many parents do we have at excusing that and saying, well, he's a really good kid. Or she's really sweet and nice. It's going against the direct command of God. They might be sweet and must be nice, but the scripture says that they are living in darkness that they're a person of lawlessness, that they're one of Satan's, that they're an unbeliever, that they're full of idols. And what fellowship does light have with darkness? I'm convinced that if someone is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, a professing believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they willingly and knowingly engage in a relationship, date or marry someone who's not a believer, I would seriously question their salvation. Their understanding, are, are they, do they have the Holy Spirit within them? It's that significant in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But again, this is not a call to discriminate based on a person's skin color. Regardless of skin color, regardless of ethnicity, if two people love the Lord Jesus Christ, then they can be wedded together. I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing for interracial marriage if two people love the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see from the scripture here is that racism is wrong. We're made in the image of God. We should not show partiality or discrimination. And we see some of the reasons why Christians in the past have sought to defend racism with the scripture. And we see it's groundless and baseless. Can't be done. It's not what the scripture teaches. Now what I want to do is not only consider why it's wrong, but the, the solution to racism. And this is when we, we're going to look at Genesis 5. Okay, so we finally got all our way to the text I wanted to look at this morning. Genesis chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. This is the text that we're, I want to show to you. What is the solution to racism? How does it end? Okay, so last week we looked at transgender issues. And we saw that transgenderism as a philosophy, as an idea that someone can, can change or seek to change from one gender into another, was really seeking to deny Genesis 1, which is the creation account. And in fact, it affirmed Genesis 3, which is the account of the fall into sin, and that it needed a Revelation 21 transformation. It needed a new creation. All things are made new. That's what it needs. And it needs it by way of the cross of Christ. That is through the redemption of Christ. Those four things coincide with the great four acts or the big scenes, the big chunks of scripture that we see in the Bible. We see creation. We see the fall into sin. We see redemption through the cross of Christ. And then we see new creation. These are the, the four big acts we think of, of a play of acts of time. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. 
Racism is wrong because of creation. We see why it exists because of the fall and because of sin. And so we can explain its origin and its source. And its solution comes in those last two acts. The act of redemption in Christ and that final act of new creation. And so that's what we're looking at here this morning. So Revelation 5, I want to read verses 9 and 10. We're going to narrow in on these particular verses, verses that Kevin read. This is a vision up into the throne room of heaven. And what a joy it will be to be there. It says in verse number nine in Revelation five, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. And to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is a wonderful, wonderful piece of scripture that speaks about that particular, definite, actual accomplishment of the atonement of Jesus Christ. When he died His death ransomed, set a people free from slavery. He did this for God, for his sake and for his glory. And that through his blood, people from out of every tribe, tongue, people and nation are are made into this one new man, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're made into a kingdom. They're priests to God. They worship him. This has all been accomplished by the great redemption of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so because of that, he's worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And he's worshiped forever and ever and ever and ever. And so what we see here in this wonderful atonement, especially in verse number nine, when it talks about every tribe and language and people and nation. We see when all the nations were started, it was really a result of sin back at the Tower of Babel. As people rebelled against God, God confused the languages, dispersed the people. And here we have in his act of redemption, God now bringing the people together into this one new man. And so we see diversity and harmony in this new creation in Christ. Okay? Now I want you to consider some of the implications from this text first look at verse number nine in revelation five it says worthy of you to take the scrolls open the seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for god from or out of every tribe and language and people and nation Okay, the word there, nation, is Greek ethne, which we get the word ethnic from. Okay, it's talking about ethnicities, people groups. That through Christ's death, he ransoms, he saves people from out of every tribe and language and people and nation. From out of every people group that you consider, Christ died to, to redeem some from that group to be one of his And so the first thing we see from this text is that God's paradise, the new creation, will include all ethnic groups and is intentionally diverse. That God did this for a reason. This wasn't an accident. This was an act of God to redeem people from every single ethnic group on the planet. That's what God wanted to do through the death of Christ. 
And so we see great diversity across racial and ethnic, cultural lines brought together because of the blood of Christ. That's the first thing we see. The second thing we see is we see diversity. The second thing we see is harmony. Look at verse number 10. And it says, and you made them, these people that he's redeemed and ransomed, you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. He didn't bring them together in these little pockets and they're going to fight and war, but rather he brought them together into one kingdom. A diverse, multicultural, multi-ethnic kingdom and together they are priests to God. So we have racial diversity and racial harmony in the new creation in Christ because of his death. That's what, that's what, he, that's what he bought with his death. A diverse, harmonious people group who are going to be a kingdom and priest to God. So we see from this text. The third thing we see is that racial diversity, racial harmony were bought with a great cost. They were bought with the blood of Christ and they were brought, bought for the glory of God. Look at verse number nine again. It says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people. For God to set out to achieve salvation and to redeem people from every tribe on this earth, it wasn't a snap of fingers, a walk in a park, and I think I'll do this today. It was his deliberate plan before time began to do it this way, and it was costly. His blood was shed. The Lord Jesus Christ died. Those tears that he was weeping, the agony he was feeling on the Garden of Gethsemane, he was not faking. That was the wrath of God that he was anticipating to face the very next day that caused him to be in distress and in agony and to pray, Oh God, if there is any other way, take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And then he went willingly to the cross and he suffered the wrath of God in order to redeem this group of people from every tribe and language and people and nation. This redemption... Of, of, of diversity and of harmony was costly. Cost the blood of Christ. There's, there's no higher cost that you can imagine. There's no, there's no dollar figure you can put on this. There, there's, there's nothing that you can estimate or try to put into context the worth of the death of the Son of God. That was the cost that God spent to bring together all the people groups of the world into this kingdom. And notice also in verse 9, it doesn't all, it says, it says, for you were slain, and by your blood, there's the cost, you ransomed people. And then it says, for God. Christ expelled this great cost to win this group of people from all the different ethnic groups of the world, and he did it for God. For God's sake, for his glory. That is, for God's honor and glory, he is praised, he is adored, he is exalted because he has sent his son to redeem out of every tribe, language, nation, and people, a people for himself. This is for God's sake. This is for God's glory. So a people who is brought together to be a kingdom and priests who represent all the different nations of this world, who represent all the different ethnicities and languages of this world, that all serves to show the glory of God. God did it this way for his own glory. That's why he does everything. 
And so the consistent testimony of Scripture is that ethnic diversity and harmony is a product of God's grace in this world, especially in His Son, Jesus Christ, and through this new people, this new man that He is making. Consider these other texts that just add to this. Colossians 3, verse 11 says this, In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. There's no racial distinctions in Christ. Whether you're barbarian, coming from the north, whether you're Scythian, Scythian, whether you're Jew, whether you're Greek, we're all one in Christ. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is no partiality in Christ based upon sex, based upon ethnicity, based upon language, skin color, none of it. The blood we share, the blood of Christ, is way deeper than any blood that might dictate our skin color. We're all one in the Lord Jesus Christ. Another example in Scripture. Before I read this one, this is from Ephesians 2. Before I read this, I want you, if if you know of some of the hostilities that existed in the first century between Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are just a, a word in English that means nations, okay, peoples. And it just meant, it's a term that the Jews used to refer to anyone who was not Jewish. So you had the Jews and then you had the, the Gentiles, the nations, all these other people who were idolaters and wicked. All right. And, and great animosity and hostility was between both groups in the first century. We read from Psalm 67 to begin with, where the psalmist calls for all the nations to rejoice and to shout for gladness and the glory of God. But yet, as so often is the case, people lose their way. And so they get into this idea that to be holy was to be a Jew. And if you weren't a Jew, then... You're on the outs. Sorry. And so because of arrogance on the Jews' part, and because of pride and arrogance in the other nations' part, they hated one another. There was great animosity between Jew and Gentile. And guess what? It still exists today. Just look at the Middle East for an example. Great animosity between these two people groups. And yet the Bible so profoundly makes Jew and Gentile one. Listen to what it says in Ephesians 2, 14 to 16. It says, For he himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both, speaking about Jew and Gentile, one. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. How can we have peace between Jew and non-Jew? It's only through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why he died. To abolish that law written ordinances, to break down the hostility between Jew and Gentile, taking two men and now making one new man, the Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate cure for racism is to embrace the redemption and the good news of Lord Jesus Christ and to long for, to hope for that coming new creation when we'll have diversity 
and harmony because of what Jesus Christ has purchased with his own blood. Now, as we consider these realities, perhaps you're here this morning and you're you're not a Christian. And, and as someone who's not a Christian, you probably see that a value in diversity and peace and harmony and, and unity. So I would urge you to consider the good news of the gospel. So many people in this world, they want peace. They want harmony. They want unity. And they hear Jesus this. Oh, I don't need that. And, and, and they're missing the fruit of what it means to come to Christ. That no longer we have the battle of the sexes in Christ. No longer do we have division between blacks and whites or whites and Hispanics or Jews and non-Jews or between First Nations and non-First Nations. We have peace, we have unity in the Lord Jesus Christ because He died to redeem people out of every ethnic group to be one new man in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this reality in Revelation 5, 9 and 10, it's my desire as a Christian to to be there. To be there singing with those people. To look around me and to see the Filipinos. To see people with dark skin. to To see people from a variety of different descents and different ethnicities praising God in their own tongues and languages. What a day that will be. And so as people who long for diversity and unity, the solution is to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin. To be included in this number, to be one of these people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. To come to Christ in repentance and faith, to receive his forgiveness, to receive this this new mind that we have in Jesus Christ. We don't need to have the hostilities. Now as we can... Consider these. What I want. What I want to leave with you today, coming out of these thoughts, is five things we can do about this. Okay, so five five practical ways that we can act even here today uh, about the topic of racism, enlightened by what the Bible teaches. Okay, so so if you want practical, here's the practical part. Okay, listen up. First practical idea based upon the truths of Scripture we talked about today, is this. First, avoid being a chronological snob. Okay? Chronological snobbery was a term actually coined not by myself, but by C.S. Lewis. And what C.S. Lewis meant by that is that we have a tendency to be so prideful in our day and age that if you look at people in the past, we're like, can you believe that? Can you believe what those buffoons actually believed? And we look at the people in the past like the Puritans. And some of them had slaves. And we're like, the Puritans? Let's throw them away. Because look how stupid they were. We're We're being chronological snobs. And we're throwing away things in the past because, hey, we know better now. We're enlightened. And in fact, looking in the past and puffing ourselves up is just fueling more pride, which is going to lead to more sins like racism and discrimination, even in our day and age. So avoid being a chronological snob. Don't throw away the Puritans because they did not work to abolish slavery. Don't throw out Martin Luther, and not King Jr., but the first Martin Luther. Don't throw him out because of what he wrote about Jewish people. You know, 
There's been so many times when, when I've taught about what Martin Luther has taught and these doctrines of scripture that he recovered. And yeah, but did you read this while he wrote about the Jews? As, as, if to, as if to erase everything else that he did. Don't blacklist people. And I saw this in the news recently. People wanted to, to blacklist and remove the name of John A. MacDonald, our first Canadian prime minister. They wanted to remove him from memorials and from schools because he called First Nations people savages. Okay? Now we look at that and we're like, how could he do that? He was the prime minister. That was the culture in that day and age. And as you look back at that time period, yeah, we see darkness. We see things that, yeah, we understand in our day and age that we, we would not utter and not say. But we can't go and try to erase the past or throw everything away because of this one blind spot or one sin. Imagine if people judge us that way. Tim, you got a lot of good to say, but I saw you sin this one time, and so therefore, I'm not having none of it. Okay? And so we're chronological snobs if we do that. So don't, don't be a chronological snob. The second thing that we must do as we consider this topic of racism, avoid playing the victim. Avoid playing the victim. What do I mean by this? Donald Trump got himself into huge trouble at Charlottesville. Okay? And if you watch the news, you know, it seems like if, if, you, if you see any of the American news, every, every single piece in the media is about Donald Trump. But um, this particular piece was about how Donald Trump mentioned after Charlottesville that there was violence on both sides. And he was almost lynched by the media. Um, you know, they, they, they just thought there was a huge travesty that, that he could say there was violence on both sides. Now, anyone could go and watch the video because everyone has a cell phone these day and age. And as you watch the video, it was true. There was violence on both sides. It wasn't as, as if there was the same kinds of things happening on both sides. You know, obviously driving a car into a group of people was, was terrible, wretched, deplorable. But there, were, there, were, there was violence on both sides. But, but media person after media person, um, you know, all these, these famous people, one after one saying, for Donald Trump to say that was, was terrible, you can't say that. There was not violence on both sides. Now, how, how can people say that? And it's because of this. One side, the white nationalists, the alt-right movement, is seen as, as people who are suppressors, oppressors. And the other side, represented by Black Lives Matter and Antifa, are seen as victims, and as a victim in our day and age today, we play the victim card to try to excuse immoral behavior. Okay? And so if, if, if someone is shot, you know, by, by, by a police officer, it's so terrible to see these police shootings. And then there's a Black Lives Matter rally, and they go and they destroy buildings and homes and cars. And the media doesn't say anything about that. It's because in our day and age, if you're the victim, it excuses immoral behavior. Now, it's wrong to kill someone based upon their ethnicity. Just it is as it's wrong to riot. Both of those things are wrong. I'm not saying they're both the same or equal, but they're both wrong. And so in our day and age, we can play the victim card to excuse immoral behavior. It might even happen here in church, not even related to racism. Some might point out a particular sin in your life and like, oh, but you don't know. You don't know how my parents treated me. You don't know how the education are brought up. And, and, they, and they play the whole victim card to excuse any kind of immoral behavior. We must not go there. And it's not just those who are victims of racism 
who can play that victim card to excuse immoral behavior. But even white people, white Christian men can even play the victim card. They can go online and say they've been marginalized. They've been victimized. They have no voice. They, their feelings have been hurt. And they can, again, promote partiality and discrimination and other wicked behavior by playing that victim card. Okay? So whether we truly have been hurt by racism or not, we can't use our status as a victim, whether right or wrong, to excuse any kind of immoral behavior. Okay? And that's what I mean by avoid playing the victim. Excusing our behavior by saying that we're a victim. Regardless of how others treat us, we are called to love others and love our neighbor as Jesus Christ has loved us. That's what we're called to as Christians. Regardless of how we're treated, we're called to respond back in in love. That's what it means to follow Christ. That's the second thing. Third thing is this. Third practical application, talking about what the Bible says about racism, is it is a time for confession and repentance. As we consider a topic like racism, partiality, or discrimination, we must be honest with ourselves, look within, and it's a time for confession and repentance. Are you a person who uses racial slurs, racial jokes? Have you done that in the past? Are you a person who, who when, when you see someone, whether it's in the grocery store or in public, you, you immediately have thoughts of, of ill will or fears or apprehension just because of the color of their skin? Is there animosity that you have between, between black or white or between Jew or Arab or English or German or French or English, First Nations or other Canadians? Is there some kind of, of hatred, discrimination in your heart that you need to confess and to repent that? That's sinful. Even if you're not acting on it, even if you're, you're holding your tongue, but these are thoughts you think, resentment that you have. It's a time for confession and repentance. It's a time to see in creation God making one people Spread it over all the earth. And we see in the new creation, God again taking all the nations and making one new man in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to embrace that. Okay, so time for confession and repentance. The third, sorry, the fourth thing, practical thing to take from this. We should take the time to understand the challenges of other cultures. Take the time to understand the challenges of people who are not like us. Okay, especially when you consider the context of the church, context of this country, if you call this country home, even near any length of time, then, then how can you better understand the shoes that other people walk in, who come here, who don't speak our language, who don't, who don't, who don't look like the majority of people here? And so learn their history, learn their food, learn their culture, learn the good, learn the bad. We need to be able to understand the challenges that they're facing. You understand these are people made in God's image that we need to be loving. And you can't love someone if you don't really get a chance to know them. Okay? So get to know people who are not like yourself. That's, that's, so take time to understand them. And then number five, fifth practical way, be deliberate to bridge gra- gaps and cross cultural and racial lines. Okay? Be deliberate to, to, to cross gaps and to sort of, sort of bridge gaps and to cross cultural and racial lines. The church should reflect what is written here in Revelation 5.9. A people ransomed for God, called out of every tribe and language and people and nation. We live in a very multi-ethnic city. And yet even in our city, we have, we have Arab churches. 
We have black churches. We have Korean churches. We have white churches. We have Filipino churches. We even have cowboy churches. Whatever your, your niche, niche or um, ethnicity, how you, how you connect with people around you, you can find a church for that. But what does that say about the body of Christ in Calgary? What, what, is, what is the thing that is bringing us together? Is it the blood of Christ? Or is it the, the language we speak and the food we share and the skin color that we, that we have? Hopefully it's the former. Hopefully it's the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we need to be deliberate to go beyond our comfort zone and to interact with people not like us. Because it's so easy for us to go to people who are like us. And I'm not just talking about just race or ethnicity. Even age. It's hard for, if you're a senior, we, we want to be with other seniors. If, you, if you're a young mom, you want to be with other young moms. If you're kids, you want to be together with the kids. If you're teenage boys, you want to be together with other teenage boys. And so we go down for the fellowship lunch and we have a section for seniors and a standing group of, of young men chatting. And then we have, we have the, the Filipinos over here. And then, and then we go over here and we have another group. And so to have that mixture doesn't happen naturally. What we see down there, that's what naturally happens. We go to people who are like us. But think about this. When you're deliberate to go and to talk to people who are not like you, you know, for the senior to talk to the young mom, or or for, for, for someone who... I don't even know what, what culture they, they are from. You know, you have so much more to talk about. <laughs> you have so much to learn from that person. And the only thing that is keeping you together is not life experience. It's not the foods you share. It's not the color of your hair, color of your skin, anything like that. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you're there and you're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I could speak for Raquel and I. Some of our most wonderful relationships that we have in this world are for people with people that we have nothing in common. Zip. That if we were not Christians, there is no chance that either one of us would give one another light of day. We are that much different. Okay? There are some strange people in this world. I'm one of them. All right? And, but in the Lord Jesus Christ, we come together and what ties us together is Christ. And you know why those relationships are so sweet with those people that you have nothing in common with except for Christ? Because when you get together, who are you talking about? Christ. When you ask them to to pray for you and, and they have no idea what you're going through because they're not in that situation at all. But what are they going to do? Well, the only thing they can do is to point you to Christ. And so we need to be deliberate in making these kinds of relationships and so we can do it even downstairs today as we go down there be deliberate don't have your chair that you have warmed up or whatever you do you know that's the chair you're going to beeline to talk to someone that you don't know that is not like you the same situation as you okay let's strive to know people unlike us let us do it for the sake of god and for the sake of christ who and and reflect really what christ has achieved through his death in making this one new man made up of a variety of nations, ethnicities, who are being brought together as a kingdom and as priests for God, all for his sake and all for his glory. So let's live in light of this new covenant, this new creation reality. This is what it means to live in light of the gospel, to be connected together, not because of racial ties, but be connected together because of Christ that goes beyond any kind of ethnic 
barriers we might have. So let's reflect Christ. Let's reflect the gospel here in our church and in our relationships. Let's pray. Oh God, I'm thankful for this text of scripture, especially Revelation 5. What a wonderful chapter. Oh God, I pray this would be our hope for each and every one of us. And if if this chapter, Revelation 5,